I want to thank you tonight for being here and uh, also thank this congregation. As I've said in times past at these studies, I think this is one of the great studies in the sense that it's personable and the folks here, the leaders and also the ladies take care of us very well who come in and uh, it's just a pleasure to be here. I regret that I won't be able to stay for the entire study, but other plans were previously made, so uh, tonight will be my last night here. But I'm also glad to Shahey and uh, Austin and maybe whoever else picked the topics because the kingdom of God has become something that uh, I find very, very interesting. And of course, different writers portray it differently. Some call it the kingdom of God. Matthew speaks of the kingdom of the heavens. But nonetheless, it's a concept that I think we probably should spend more time looking at. You know, I think we're pretty good at talking about the church. I think we're pretty good at sort of delving into the epistles and looking at the church and what it is, the body of Christ. And I'm not going to detract from any of that tonight because I believe all of that. But the kingdom just brings a different nuance. It's a different concept. And so when you think about the king and the kingdom... And how it applies to our lives, I find myself, as I get older, focusing as much on that or more in meetings and things than I do just the concept of the church. Now, of course, I don't know that I'm going to be able to cover every one of the questions that was assigned me, but here are some things that we hope to maybe look at. What makes a kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of heaven? Is the kingdom of God the same as the kingdom of heaven? Is the kingdom of God the same as the church? And is the kingdom of God central to the theme of the Bible? So we're going to launch off in that and first of all, of course, set some definition. What is a kingdom or what makes a kingdom? Now, of course, we live in what is often called a democracy, which it's really not. It's a democratic republic. But nonetheless, uh, the idea of kingship, other than maybe our exposure to history books and or foreign nations and or the scripture, maybe a little bit uh, something we don't understand. But in the idea of a king, of course, in the Old Testament and then also in the Old World, would have been a sovereign leader. And so when we look at the word kingdom, we want to focus, of course, upon the reign of Christ. We want to focus upon the royal reign of the person of Jesus and how when he came, he was indeed not just the king of the Jews, but he is the king of his kingdom. And of course, Jesus promised that the kingdom was going to come. He said it's near at hand even. Now, when you look at a kingdom, there are basically four things that a kingdom needs. For those, of course, who are maybe older and used to sit when your uh, parents maybe or church leaders went through the old Jewel Miller film strips or the old slides, there were identified four items of what a kingdom is. It requires a king. It requires a territory. It requires subjects and it requires a law. Or as Clint DeFrench sometimes says, reign, realm, rank, and rule. And of course that's right because we have in the church or in the kingdom, if you will, King Jesus. He is the one that wants to sit on the throne of our hearts. He reigns or should reign preeminently. He sits upon the hearts and minds of people. He is in us. We are the territory, if you will. We are also the subjects because we are the believers who accept the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, His law, which you have to have law in a kingdom to maintain order, would be His covenants, His rule, His scriptures, if you will. 
And of course, each one of these things, whether you're talking about the physical, the metaphysical, or the scriptural, can be found in the scriptures. Jesus is the king. The territory is the hearts and minds of people. We are the subjects, those who are converted to his kingdom. And of course, he reigns over us in a very loving, but yet powerful way. Well, of course, we come to the term then, the kingdom of God. Now, later on, we'll talk about the kingdom of heaven, but what is the kingdom of God? Now, I'm going to approach this maybe a little bit differently in that when we look, of course, at the kingdom, which we've already talked about what the kingdom concept itself is, when we say the kingdom of God, really what we're doing is we're talking about who owns the kingdom. We're talking about who is over all, and I mean over all the kingdom. And of course, God is the one that uh, had this in his mind to bring forth, as we'll notice in a few minutes. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, I think the thrust is on the authority factor of God. God is the one who created everything. God is the one who set everything into motion. And so when we think about the kingdom of God, we think about his providence. We think about his goodness, and we think about his reign over our lives. In fact, I was thinking about this this afternoon, and when you talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heavens, and you begin to trace it out, it very much parallels with the scheme of redemption, because Jesus ultimately would come as king. Now, God introduced the kingdom concept, really, I think, in the very beginning. Now, you may take umbrage with this a little bit, because I don't want to take terms and make them mean something they don't, but I believe that God introduced uh, the idea of the kingdom in, in the Old Testament. Of course, we talk about the kingdom of Christ, which is New Testament. But, you know, God began to develop a lot of things in the Old Testament through uh, His prophets and through the scheme of redemption, through sacrificial systems and various things. Well, I believe that He also developed the king system or the kingdom system. And, of course, while many un misunderstood it, while the Jewish folks, even of Jesus' day, really didn't have, I think, a real clear view of what God had intended, it was all part and parcel with the scheme of redemption that God brought about. Now, we do know that Israel understood that there was a kingdom concept, because at one point they asked for a king. But how did they know about this concept? How did humans in the world come to know about this concept of the kingdom that we later would call the kingdom of God? Well, first of all, it was something that I think was implanted in the scriptures. You find so many scriptures about God and how he is enthroned and the Lord is king and so on and so forth as I've got it here on the board. So, you know, this idea in the Jewish literature of a king or of God reigning supreme was inherent within their knowledge. But I think it gets more specific than that. When you go back to the book of Genesis, I believe you find the, the, the Edenic sort of world being described in kingdom terms. You know, Adam was told to rule over the Garden of Eden. He was given the assignments. Now, of course, God is ultimately still in control, but God crowned Adam, if you will, as a ruler. God said, you know, let us make man in our image and in our likeness and let them rule over these things that God created. So within that, I see a kingship concept, a kingdom concept even, now, I don't know that we want to take that too far, because obviously there are things that Eden didn't have that maybe we would think later on a kingdom would have, but Adam forfeited his kingship. He forfeited his right and position when he gave his allegiance to Satan. But the Jews knew 
that Adam was the first man. They knew that he had this authority. And in fact, he really and he and Eve were co-regents, I think, in the garden. Well, later on, God reestablishes or reminds His people of this king concept in Genesis 17. You know, when God has already called Abraham back in Genesis 12, and in Genesis 17, God sort of reiterates this, this idea of blessing Abraham, and He gives what we might talk, say is a king mandate. You know, God will reign over the world by whom He chooses, but He's going to give the nations kings. And so then, for example, in Genesis 17, 4, I will make nations of you, Abraham, is what God says. And kings will come forth from you. So all the way back during the time of Abraham, you know, even though Israel has not yet fully been established, or really even established, it's still in promise, the idea of a kingdom or a kingship is already being developed. And then, of course, when we get to the nation of Israel, Israel was commissioned to be a kingdom of priests. It was to be, I believe, the world's priesthood. It was to be a kingdom of priests, and they were to be the light to the nations. They were to be the ones through whom the nations would go to find God. And yet, of course, they abused that privilege. And, of course, they many times coalesced and uh, became more like the world than the world did them. But nonetheless, God had ultimately designed that they would be a kingdom of priests. And then I believe that God also foretold even Israel's national kingship. You know, I think God was in control. Now, the problem is, is the people had different ideas. But, you know, in Deuteronomy, now this is going way back. In Deuteronomy 17, 14, there God speaks of a king being set over his people. But he says, with the caveat, whom the Lord your God will choose. So, you see, God wanted them to have a king, or at least allowed them to have a king. He knew that was coming. Now, of course, it was going to be physical at first. Today we have a spiritual king. But nonetheless, God was going to call the shots. God was going to say who was king and who was not to be king. Now, that brings up the question because uh, when I was a kid and younger, I used to think that Israel wasn't supposed to to have had a king. And so when they came to Samuel and said, hey, you know, we want a king, I thought, well, man, they're really stepping out of line. Well, yes and no. God had promised, as I noted back in Deuteronomy, that Israel could have a king. But as I like to think of it, Israel sort of jumped the gun. They began to look at all these other nations around them, and that's the king they wanted. That's the type of king that they longed for. Had they just waited, it seems that God would have given them a king. David, maybe? He would have given them the king. But they jumped the gun because of their lusts to be like other nations. But the point I'm making here is that the Israelite nation knew about kings. They knew about the kingship concept. This was nothing new. And of course, then when you come to the real, Israel, uh, the, the real uh, idea of the Davidic kingdom, it, it's fully established by this time. You know, Saul was, he was the first king, but he was not really, he was not like David. David was a king. He was a man after God's own heart. Which makes me think that maybe God would have established David uh, had uh, you know, Saul not been pushed into the kingship. God allowed it, but he said, you're going to regret it. Well, anyway, God looks at David, though, and David, even though he's not a perfect man, he is, uh, he's given promises by God to have his kingdom established. In fact, it's going to be established so well that it's going to be eternal. Now, David, of course, was a mortal. 
So then we've got this conundrum of how this eternal kingdom could eventually come from a mortal man. Well, of course, that's part of the scheme of redemption. But again, national Israel, it had a kingdom. God allowed them to have a kingdom. But at times it was perilously close to collapse. You know, you find again, even Saul, he was evil. David's peril in battle at times, even, uh, you know, when he went out to fight uh, Ishmael. You know, the, the lamp was almost extinguished in the, in the possible death of David. We have the divided kingdom. We have the captivities. We have the curse of Coniah. We have all of these troubles that beset the temporal kingdom of Israel. And yet, of course, God had something better. Well, that brings us then to John the Baptist and the more New Testament type era. Now, of course, we leave the Old Testament, the days of Malachi, having the Israelites having gone through the Babylonian captivity. The kingship is basically destroyed, or in the sense of it's in, it's in ashes. And God's promise, though, keeps marching forward. Just like God had promised that there would be a Savior, so this promise of a king was inherent within the scheme of redemption. John comes and he says, behold, and we're looking at Matthew here, which of course is going to talk a little bit more about the kingdom of heaven. But for now, just keep in mind that those concepts are relatively the same. We'll talk about some nuances in a moment. But John the Baptist comes and he says, hey, this kingdom that you've been longing for, and of course you remember in 63 BC, Rome had come in and taken over Israel and had subjugated them, and they hated that. They longed for a king like David had been. They longed for the glory days. And all of a sudden, here's John the Baptist after about 400 years of silence. He thunders from heaven, and he says, the kingdom is at hand. This thing that they had longed for was now on the precipice. It was on the, the cusp of becoming a reality. Well, Jesus picks up the same text, or the same, con, the same idea, rather, and he preaches the kingdom of God. In fact, it's interesting to me, and I don't want to get too sidetracked on this, but you know, the gospel message, at least initially, was the kingdom is near. It was a kingdom message. Now, of course, when we think of the gospel today, we think of doctrine, we think of all that. that. That's all well and good. But all doctrine stems from the kingdom concept. And so if we don't get the kingdom concept right, we're not going to really understand the place of doctrine in the bigger picture. The first gospel was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, when we look at the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, but we're talking about the kingdom of God specifically now, I think you can identify three, and there are more, no doubt, but there are three different concepts that I want to just briefly talk about. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about the reign of God. We're talking about His mighty power. We're talking about His sovereignty. Now, the first point on that is that God owns the kingdom. We've already noted that. God in the very beginning, He set forth this concept of the kingdom even before Jesus was really obviously here and even while He was yet being prophesied of. So we have an issue of ownership. It was going to be owned by God. He's going to ultimately be the authority. And then we have what we might call the ontology, the spiritual realm, the spiritual qualities versus the material realm. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then the obedience content or quality, which of course speaks to us as citizens of the kingdom. So who ultimately owns the kingdom? Well, I've already said that God, the Father, owns the kingdom. And of course, as we'll notice, hopefully when we get to that point, if we have time, is eventually, even though we talk about Jesus being the king, that kingdom will be turned back over to God. 
The kingdom of God, though, focuses on ownership. The kingdom proceeds from the Father. It is superintended by the Father. Its affairs are delegated by the Father. That doesn't mean that there aren't other players. But God is where, as Harry S. Truman once said, where the buck stops, so to speak. Now, God's, the kingdom of God focuses on sovereignty. You know, again, even in the Old Testament, the Psalms, we find the Lord, or Yahweh, establishing His throne. Daniel speaks of the Most High, who is the ruler over the realm of mankind. Now, he's not specifically here talking about Jesus, yet, anyway, he's talking about God. So, we're talking about the sovereignty of God. The kingdom of God also, it focuses on providence. Look at those Old Testament prophecies such as Daniel. You know, Daniel 2 is a great passage because it gives in very historical detail what was coming down the pike. And of course, they're in the Babylonian captivity, but God says, hey, don't sweat it because one day there's going to be, or Daniel says, there's going to be a kingdom that the God of heaven will set up. Providentially, God is going to give you a real kingdom. And it's not going to be the Babylonian kingdom. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we talk about providence, but we also talk, talk about the supremacy and the power of this. In Mark thir- Matthew 13, verse 43, it talks about the righteous shining forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Jesus is saying this. So you see, the kingdom of the Father speaks of the supremacy and the ultimate power of God. And then, of course, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, in what we call the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches His apostles to pray, Your kingdom come. Now, He's not just talking about Himself. He's talking about the overall reign or the overall supremacy of God the Father. And so then, Jesus begins and the other writers begin to prepare for that. But as we talk about the ownership, even though God owns the kingdom, the the Father or God has, uh, has the right to appoint others as He wills. In fact, Psalms speaks of that. Psalms 2, verses 6 through 8 speak of God installing His King upon Mount Zion. God ultimately calls the shots as to who is going to be playing the role in the various components of the kingdom. You know, authority delegated is basically authority owned, if that makes any sense. And of course, Jesus, when He was upon this earth, could claim to have the same authority of God because it had been given to him. In fact, Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. So Jesus had this authority from God the Father delegated to him, and so then he had the power of the Father. He could claim to be and exercise the prerogatives of the Father, even though he wasn't the Father. Jesus administered the kingdom. You know, John 3 verse 35 says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And then, of course, Paul speaks in Ephesians of Christ and the heavenly places and how God is going to put or has put all things under His feet. So, Jesus, even though He is not the Father, that authority and that kingdom prerogative has been delegated to Him. Well, let's go on. Jesus has the authority of the Father, and I think we see this even in the parables. There's the parable in Matthew 21 of the wicked tenants. And of course, one of the arguments, the tenants, uh, you know, they're, they're killing the prophets and they're killing everyone. One of the things the Father says is, I'll send my son, and they will respect my son. Why was that? Well, because in that day, the son was known to have the prerogatives and the authority of the Father. 
So Jesus has the authority of the Father. So basically when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we're talking about God owns the kingdom, the ownership. We're talking about God allowing Jesus to reign supreme, authority being given to Jesus, and thus Jesus can speak as if the kingdom is His. In fact, in John 18, verse 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. Well, it was Jesus' kingdom, even though God is the superintendent overall. Well, let's just discuss this just very momentarily. When was this, our, Jesus was, of course, given all authority rather during his ministry, but when was Jesus coronated? You know, a king typically can be in waiting, but until until he's coronated, he's sometimes not recognized as the king. Well, you know, Jesus was coronated. And I believe that happened on Pentecost. You know, in fact, Peter in his sermon speaks of this whole miraculous event that is now being poured out upon the people as being proof that Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. And so when I look at Pentecost, when I look at Acts chapter 2, I see really Peter's thrust there again being about the kingdom. In fact, he goes all the way back to David, King David, and uses that as a springboard for his arguments about the authority of Jesus sitting on the throne of David. Now, it was a spiritual throne because there was no physical throne of David left. But nonetheless, I believe that at Pentecost, Jesus takes, shall we say, the ownership uh, or is coronated in the official sense of the kingdom. Now, of course, that kingdom that Jesus now reigns over is temporary. Because 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Christ will reign until He has put all enemies under His feet, and then it will be turned back over to the Father, which is where it came from in the beginning. The until that, uh, that Paul uses, of course, is a time indicator. So the kingdom is Christ's, but someday it will be turned over, will be final consummation of all things, and the kingdom will return back to the Father. And then God will be all in all. Very interesting phrase. Well, let's talk about the ontology, which just means the inner workings, the characteristics of the kingdom of God. You know, there are many things, and we're just going to notice a few. But when we talk about the kingdom of God, of course, you find various things that the Bible says about it. First of all, it can be sought. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, the reign of God in your lives. Put spiritual things first. It can be entered. You know, Jesus said, you know, it's harder for, uh, or it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, of course, as we're going to notice, he wasn't talking about the church here, at least not yet. He's talking about the reign of God. Because, you see, a rich person may very well have another king in his life that sits on the throne of his heart, which is money. It's open to sinners. You know, again, the Scripture tells us in Matthew 21 that even the publicans and the immoral, the harlots, were going into the kingdom before the religious Jews of the day. So it can be entered. It also was present during the ministry of Jesus in some sense. Now, you know, when we look at the kingdom concept, whether we're talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, there is, and I don't want to scare you with too much jargon, but there is this now but not yet concept that I believe you find in the Scriptures. And I think that what, what the, the writers are doing, what Jesus is doing, is He's showing the dynamic uh, component of the kingdom. We typically, in the churches of Christ, say, well, the kingdom came on Pentecost. Well, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I do disagree with that. Because the kingdom concept is dynamic. 
It was already in the, the midst of them, as we'll notice in a moment, during Jesus' ministry. Because when we're talking about the kingdom, we're talking about the king. We're talking about the power. It was right there in front of their faces. But anyway, it was at least in some sense present in Jesus' day. It can be forfeited. The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, Jesus said to those Jews who rejected him. It contains things that are mysteries that, again, had never been before revealed, such as what you find in the parables and those illustrations that are just incredible about the kingdom concept, the ontology of the kingdom. It's near at hand, it, uh, the Scripture tells us in Luke 21. Now, that's an interesting passage because Luke 21 seems to be about the destruction of Jerusalem. And yet Jerusalem was destroyed some 40 years after Jesus died. And so then, at that point, apparently, Jesus could say, the kingdom is nigh to you, the reign of God is nigh. In what sense? The church? No, the church had already been established. In the sense that the reign of God was visible, it was the, the power was being demonstrated even in AD 70. Well, of course, it requires a new birth, John 3 with Nicodemus. Uh, you know, it is not a list of just empty aesthetic practices, such as Paul mentions in Romans 14. It uh, has to do with righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. It is, again, a, a dynamic, powerful, spiritual concept that, again, I think we need to get our heads around. It also doesn't come with observation, Jesus said. In other words, it's not probably what you're going to expect. The Jews of his day had preconceptions. They had misconceptions about what the kingdom would be. And Jesus says, hey, you know, be careful what you're looking for because that may not be how the kingdom comes. And then he also says the kingdom of God is within you. Now, I realize there are various ways of translating that, but the concept is, is that the kingdom concept is a heart, mind, spiritual, inside of us concept. It's not necessarily something you can throw a dart at and hit on a map. Well, then, of course, the kingdom is going to require the subject's to obey. And we find all kinds of scriptures that deal with the obedience that we manifest in the kingdom of God. If God is sovereign, and if we were created by God, which is true, then we owe our allegiance and our obedience to God. And so then, obedience. It requires effort and searching. It's not something, again, that's just going to be plopped in our laps. I believe that the kingdom is a relationship. And so that relationship is going to be hard sometimes. It has to be developed just like any relationship we have with a human. So the relationship we have with God, Christ, and His Word has to be developed. And it's going to require tenacity. It's going to require patience. It even may require tribulation. Long after the church is established, in Acts 14, Paul says that we must, through tribulation, enter into the reign of God. And that's literally what the word is. It's the idea of God's presence and God's power over us. That will require sometimes things of us that are very difficult. Now, one thing I want to just talk about, and I don't want to get too far off in this, but, you know, when we think about obedience, I really believe that sometimes we have perhaps a skewed view of what we are to be as Christians. Now, we should strive to be complete. We should strive to be perfect. But perfectionism inhibits obedience. 
In other words, if we are so concentrated on always, you know, crossing every eye, no, don't cross the eyes. Uh, that's terrible for vision. But uh, if we're worried about, you know, dotting the eyes and crossing the T's to the point, now don't get me wrong, that's important, to the point that we miss the bigger point, then we become like the Pharisees. And so then I like to say, and again, don't take me out of context here, but obedience is not about perfection, but it's about direction. Now, if we're just lazy and we don't want to seek out the kingdom and we don't want to strive to be complete, then that's a whole other ballgame. But nonetheless, even if we were perfect, Jesus says we're still unprofitable servants. You know, again, Paul said on various occasions, such as in Philippians 3, I haven't attained yet. So you see, Paul pressed on. And so when we think about obedience in the kingdom, yes, let's be very careful. Let's be very uh, particular about obedience. But let's also realize that we are human and will fail. And so we get right back up and we strive for direction in the right way. You know, if you take a child and you insist on perfection with that child, he'll give up. He'll give up because he'll be discouraged. Well, that's another subject for another time. Okay, so now let's look at Matthew. This is where I'm more comfortable because, of course, the commentary and then just love to study the kingdom, of, 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 uh, the, the kingdom concept because you have the kingdom of heaven, which is different terminology than the kingdom of God. So obviously, they're not exactly the same. Now, of course, we use parallel words all the time to describe something. That doesn't mean that one's more superior than the other. It just means that there's different nuances. The kingdom is much like a diamond, has facets, it's beautiful. And depending on where you are and look at it, depending on how the light shines, you're going to see various things. Now, Matthew uses the term kingdom of God. Now, we typically think of Matthew using only the term kingdom of heaven, but he uses it five times. So, obviously, Matthew is not adverse to the term kingdom of God. And so he uses that at least five times in his gospel narrative. But the, uh, the preponderance of evidence is that Matthew uses kingdom of heaven at least 32 times. Now, why does Matthew choose the term kingdom of heaven? Why didn't he, like Luke and Mark, just say kingdom of God? Well, I think the reason he did that is because he agrees with the idea of the kingdom of God, that God's ultimately in control. But I think he's trying to show us the spiritual nature of the kingdom. You know, one of the things that Matthew points out is that Jesus was very hard on the Pharisees who were hypocrites. They did not have a heart for God. They had a head that claimed to know God, but their heart was far from Him. And so I think Matthew chooses a term that is unmistakably, shall we say, a metaphysical term, a term that deals with the ethereal, a term that, again, shows us the real thrust of what God wants in our lives. He doesn't want roteness. He wants, uh, he wants uh, a little living sacrifice, if you will. Now, again, there are many ideas about why Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. Some say, well, you know, the Jews didn't use God's name, and so Matthew shies away from that. That may be, but he does mention it five times. But, you know, others say, well, he just preferred the kingdom, con or the kingdom of uh, uh, con heaven's concept, rather. Well, that may be too. But, but I really think that the idea here is the idea of the nature of the kingdom. Now, of course, the kingdom of God concept describes one of the natures, one of the facets. But when you talk about the kingdom of heaven, it, 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 puts, it, on, it puts it on a different plane, if you will. Now, two terms, of course, used, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, but they are parallel. There are nuances. Let me just give you a couple of examples. In Matthew 11, 
it speaks of John the Baptist who is least in the kingdom of heaven. In Luke, it speaks of John the Baptist who is least in the kingdom of God. Now, was John the Baptist least in two things? No, he's least in one thing, but they're not exactly the same language. They obviously carry different nuances. Matthew 13, you know, Jesus talks about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. In Mark 4, Jesus talks about the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Now, you know, again, it's, it's a parallel concept. But, very interesting passage in Matthew 19. We have, of course, Jesus using both terms that in one verse. I say unto you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't think he's talking about two kingdoms here. I think he's talking about two different nuanced synonymy, nuanced terms, if you will. Heaven and God are not the same, but you can't disassociate one from the other. So what is the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel? We've looked at what the kingdom of God is. It deals with ontology. It deals with uh, authority. It deals with all those other things. Well, again, the idea of kingdom is the same as previous. The idea of kingdom is the emphasis on the king. But then Matthew throws in this other word, which is the kingdom of heaven. And as I understand it, and we have others who are more qualified here to address this, but it means the sky. It's in the plural, typically, in the Gospels. So literally, it means that the kingdom of the skies. Now again, what does that mean? Well, the reign of the skies seems to me to emphasize the all-encompassing nature of Jesus' kingship. It's not an earthbound thing. It's something that supersedes. It's out of this world, if you will. The phrase in Greek underscores the limited rule of God. The reign of the skies is literally what Matthew is saying. The kingdom of the heavens or the spiritual nature. It's universal. It's ethereal. It's transcendent. It is unconstrained by time or space. And that's what you see, of course, when you think about the kingdom. And so then, Jesus, again, His kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't have the worldly trappings that a physical kingdom would have. It is, rightly so, as Matthew tries to point out, a spiritual concept. Now, again, that's so far removed from what the Jews of Jesus' day expected. They wanted an army. They wanted a king. They wanted a literal throne of David. No wonder Matthew uses a term, because he's writing to Jewish people. No wonder he uses a term that sort of blows that out of the water. In fact, it blows it off the earth. Because it's spiritual in nature. Now, let's just very quickly go through some other concept because I don't believe we'll ever, ever understand the kingdom of God for that matter, but especially the kingdom of heavens, if we don't get the definition right. The kingdom of the heavens, it is literal, but it's not a physical place. It's not something you can throw a dart and hit on the map. It is a spiritual concept. It doesn't come with what you might think you would see if you saw a kingdom coming. It is a concept of the heart, the mind, and the soul. Now, without preaching, and that's hard not to, we have sometimes taught people very well about different things, obedience in this area or that area, but the heart was never addressed. And so then we get into the real world, our children leave what we call the church. It's, it's a conundrum, it's a problem. And how to instill the reign of Christ in our own hearts first and in others is a very difficult concept. I, I, I don't know that I have the answer to that. 
other than it is very difficult. Well, when is the kingdom of the heavens? Well, again, Jesus and John preached the kingdom is at hand. In other words, it's near in space and time. Its proximity is here. And I think the idea there is that, you know, the kingdom is now, is really what Jesus and John are saying. It is now. You know, Alexander Campbell talks, and he translates this verse this way, which, again, there is some uh, perhaps room for disagreement. But he says, the kingdom of heaven is invaded, and invaders take possession by force. And I think the idea there is that even in John and Jesus' day, people were pressing into the kingdom concept. That's what they had longed for, and so they're pressing into it. So, for them, the kingdom was then. It was now, if you will. Matthew sees the kingdom of heaven as breaking forth into time and history, and the kingdom of heaven is God's reign over everything. It is spiritual. It's been inaugurated, of course, but not yet fully consummated. And as I mentioned, there's this already but not yet concept that sort of pervades even later on in the New Testament. Well, let's talk a little bit about this. This is one of the questions. And that is, what about the Lord's Prayer? You know, in the Lord's Prayer, we have that great prayer that says, Our Father who is in heaven, or literally who is in the skies, holy be your name. And then you have this phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done. Now that phrase is very interesting because I love the Lord's Prayer, and I know you do too, but we've been taught that perhaps we shouldn't say the Lord's Prayer, at least not that way, because the kingdom has already come. The kingdom's here, it came on Pentecost, and therefore, you know, I was taught that you probably shouldn't pray that prayer. Well, when it talks about the rain coming or the will of God being done on earth as heaven, there are various components that you have anticipation of the kingdom that was not yet consummated. You have God's authority, and of course you have the location, the kingdom of heaven. So the idea is that the reign of God is coming to earth. And so Jesus tells his apostles to pray for that. Now, let's look at this verse. Thy Kingdom or reign come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Now, what I see when I look at this is thy reign come on earth again, and thy will be done as it always has been in heaven. In other words, this is an anticipatory statement that God's sovereign reign would again pervade the earth. I don't think there's anything incompatible about that in saying we go and preach the gospel because that's what we're doing. We're converting the hearts and minds of people so that, again, God's reign or Christ's reign in this case can pervade their lives. And so, I believe that as it was in the beginning, when God was in full control, that is what His Son now comes to restore in a very spiritual way, yes, but he comes to restore that. In fact, when you look at the Garden of Eden and then, of course, John's Revelation, you find this restoration concept in the Edenic estate. So, when did the kingdom come? Well, there are various ideas about that. Some say, well, it came during Jesus' ministry. Some say it came at Pentecost. Some say AD 70 because of the verse that we've noted. Some say it's not yet come, it's in the future. Others say, well, not till the final judgment. Well, again, when you look at the passages of the kingdom, there is this now but not yet concept that is pervasive. In a sense, the kingdom was already in existence during Jesus' ministry. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. 
Now, it was either in the midst, literally, as in it, not in its fullness, but it was in the sense that the king was there, or it was being pressed into time and space, and the kingdom was, at least in some way, like leaven, already being present in their time. Now, what am I trying to do here? I'm trying to show us that the kingdom is not one of those things you point to a dot on a map or a dot in time, and you say, well, that's when it all was wrapped up in a fine package. No, it was a process that began in Eden, and actually, yes, the coronation was consummated on Pentecost, but the kingdom is still moving. It is still advancing. Now, in Matthew 6, when Jesus says, thy kingdom come, I don't believe that he's talking about Pentecost. I think we have to read a lot into Matthew 6 before we can come up with Pentecost. Now, it is true, Pentecost is vital, but Jesus is talking about his kingdom. Pentecost is way out there in the future. The apostles, the audience to whom Jesus spoke, didn't understand anything about Pentecost. And so he's not talking about Pentecost. He's talking about the dynamic, progressive, pervasive rule of God in people's hearts and minds. King Jesus says, make the kingdom come. Well, again, he's talking about the reign of Christ, which needs then, it's needed now. Now, you know, some say, well, what about Mark 9.1? You know, some of you standing here will not taste of death till you see the kingdom coming with power. And they say, well, they say again, that's Pentecost because they came with power. That's true. But again, the idea of Mark 9.1 is the idea of the powerful concept of a kingdom that was marching forward. The apostles were going to experience this. They would not die before they saw the gospel going to all the world. So yes, it connects with Pentecost, but it's not exclusively relegated to that. The kingdom was already being ushered in. I show I have about six minutes. I don't know. Maybe five. I don't know. Anyway. So is it possible or is it permissible to say the Lord's Prayer? Well, don't violate your conscience. I was taught that we could pray for the kingdom's increase. We could pray for a lot of things, but we couldn't pray the Lord's Prayer. I personally believe you can now, again, you have to understand what you're praying, as we should with any prayer, but the reign of God is not yet complete. In the sense that Jesus used it, the reign of God is still coming. Now, very quickly, where is the kingdom of the heavens? Well, we'll run through this very quickly. It's within us, because there's a couple more points that Shahi wants me to get to for sure. And uh, it's within us. It's not a dot on a map. It's our spiritual life. It is our heart, our everyday living, our today, our now. If you're in the kingdom, then it's going to affect every single thing that you do. Now, is the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of the heavens, really, the same as heaven? Well, no, not really. Because, you see, in Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, the reign of the heavens, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. So there's obviously two things, two places, if you will, or two concepts being discussed. Now, we can say that it's the kingdom of the heavens because God, whatever this means, is in heaven. That's where His authority emanates from. And so heaven is where the Father dwells, so we can speak of the, king, uh, the kingdom of the heaven, even though God has bequeathed the kingdom to the world. They're not the same thing. They are different concepts, I believe. One has to do with the reign and the rule over people. The other is where God's presence is. Heaven is the idea of something future, something eschatological. Whereas I think the reign of the heavens is here and now. 
Well, very quickly, is the church, and we're almost done here, so I'll go ahead and do this. Is the church, uh, or is the kingdom of heavens the church? Well, now, I really truncated my uh, discussion after our discussion today, not because I changed my mind, but I figured that was too of a messy subject. But no, not exactly. The kingdom and the church are not the same. At least not exactly. They're nuanced concepts that include each other. The way I like to describe it, and maybe you have a better way, is that the kingdom of God is the reign of God from beginning to end. It's from beginning to end. Whereas the church, or that which Jesus promised to build, which was really an assembly, did you know Jesus never promised to build a church? Not in the Greek. Jesus promised to build an assembly. Now I realize the English translates it as church, but nonetheless, the church, shall we say, is a subset of the greater kingdom. If you're in the church, you're in the kingdom. But Abraham was in the kingdom. But he wasn't in the church. So the issue is one more of scope more than reign. And I think the idea here is, is that there are two different concepts that are overlapping. Now, I will throw this out because I think we have to be careful how we use both terms, whether it's church or kingdom. You know, again, there's a lot of overlap perhaps in those terms. But for people in the world today, when we say the word church, they see buildings, they see ecclesiastical structures, they see hierarchies, they see rules, they see regulations, they see all kinds of stuff, partly because of Catholicism. But when I look at the word kingdom, there's a little bit of a different twist. The kingdom is more about hearts and minds and about people and about who we are and who our allegiance is to. And so I'm not suggesting we quit using the word church, but... I am suggesting that we're careful in the terms that we use. So, in conclusion, when we look at the Old Testament and the New, we have the kingdom that is a pervasive theme. It's, a, it's pictured in prophecy in the Old Testament. It's presented with power in the New Testament. And then, of course, it is still going forward, marching forward, Sometimes we call this the church militant in the process of evangelism and preaching. You know, in Hebrews we have an interesting passage that says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Receiving in the present tense. So, I think the kingdom concept is one that continues on. It is still marching. And so, the gospel at first was primarily about the kingship of Jesus and the arrival of the kingdom. And that's the reason Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven has arrived and is still coming. And we need to make sure we teach others and show others what it is and that they also can be a part of it. So that's my, that's my thoughts uh, this evening on, on the kingdom.